Tonight I'd like us to turn again to the 14th chapter of the book of Revelation. Last time we were together, we studied most of the time about the everlasting character of the gospel of Jesus Christ, recognizing that it doesn't change. The truth never changes. Men change. Um, nations change. Rulers change. Uh, times change. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is everlasting. And that's why we rejoice to preach it, to proclaim it, because it's something that will never, never change. But tonight we want to continue our study of this great chapter that actually is a summary or a, a prophetic panoramic view of the last events that occur as they are recorded in the book of Revelation. We know that the seventh trump has now blown, the last trump. And, and as a result of that, there are going to be seven vials or bowl judgments poured out upon the wicked in the earth. Now, tonight's study is going to be titled, The Harvest and the Vintage. The Harvest and the Vintage. We're going to pick up our study at verse 8. And there followed another angel, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations to drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, to say uh, not only of her immorality, but also her idolatrous practices. Now, first, I want to notice that Babylon, this is the first time Babylon is mentioned by name in the book of Revelation. And we need to recall briefly how that in the book of Genesis chapter 11, when the mass of humanity was in Shinar, a land that became known as Babylon, uh, and they built a tower. You remember the story. They were building this tower up to heaven. And uh, it was a monument of their rebellion. Remember, God said to go forth and into all the earth and multiply but they rebelled against that word and stayed together and uh, were building this edifice to their rebellion and God came down and frustrated their language and called the name of it Babel because there were so many languages they couldn't they could not communicate one with another and as a result of that they spread throughout the earth and that's where the languages of the earth actually began so this area this part of uh, the world that is in modern day Iraq today is located between the Euphrates and the Tigris rivers and that particular part of the world is uh, very very significant in God's program in God's end time prophecies that we'll get into uh, in uh, chapter 16 and 17. But I want you to notice that this Babylon is uh, actually in the New Testament is by name the political and economic and religious uh, entity of the world. It's under the dominion of the unholy trinity. Remember what the unholy trinity is? It is the devil himself. It is the Antichrist himself, and it is the prophet that, that are actually controlled by the devil and the spirit of demons in the last days. 
And I want to pay particular attention to the repetition is fallen. Notice it says Babylon is fallen, but it says is fallen. Why is that repetition so significant to our study tonight? Remember when Joseph was translating the, the dream of Pharaoh. And, and remember he had two separate dreams. But when he told those dreams to, uh, to Joseph, Joseph says the dream is actually one. And the reason God has repeated the dream is to show the certainty of it. The certainty of it coming to pass. So when it says Babylon has fallen, is fallen, that is prophetic language that describes something that is certain, something that is decreed, something that will surely come to pass. Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Now, <clears throat> that's uh, important for us to notice in our study. All right. In verse 9, we hear the third word, the third angel is going to speak. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, verse 10, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And underline that, the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Now, here he is uh, uh, echoing the decree of God from heaven. This third angel, after the preaching or the proclamation of the everlasting gospel, after this uh, good news to the people of God, he's going to give the bad news to those that aren't. To those that don't belong to God, to the unbelieving, to the Christ rejecting, to the gospel rejecting people of the earth. He's, he's got a message for them and he uses the word cup, the cup of his indignation. Now I want to go to one reference. There's probably 30, but one reference uh, to this cup. That's found back in the Psalms of David in Psalm chapter 75. Turn there with me very quickly tonight. We're not going to take a lot of time with this, but we need to know what this language is indicative of. What, what's it's indicating when he says the cup of his indignation, or it could be translated the cup of his wrath. The cup of his wrath. Listen to what David said in Psalm chapter 75, verses 7 and 8. But God is the judge. He's the final judge. He putteth down one and setteth up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red. It is full of mixture. It is, uh, uh, and he pours it out, uh, and he pours out of the same. But the dregs thereof, all the wicked of the earth, shall wring them out. And drink them. You see, this is uh, this is very typical language. This is very uh, biblical language, referring to the wrath of God. And if you're taking notes tonight, we're not going to go to these verses. But if you're taking notes, write down Job, chapter twenty-one, verse twenty, Matthew chapter twenty, verse twenty-two, and Matthew chapter twenty-six, verse thirty-nine. Also, write down Isaiah 51, verse 17, and Jeremiah. Boy, we could go there. 
uh, chapter 49, verse 12. These are references to the fact that God is not uh, a God that is indulgent of sin. He's not. Uh, he, he's not a, like a, a holy grandfather that excuses his grandchildren, that, that sweeps their sins under some cosmic rug. God is a holy God, and he's infinitely perfect, and he demands perfection. He demands perfection, and in his hand is a cup that he will pour out upon the unbelieving, the unregenerate, the unrepentant of the earth. I wanted to go to that because that's so graphic to me. God is judge, and it's in his hand that this cup is residing. Now go back with me to Revelation 14. This cup of indignation is also called the cup of God's fury. It's also called the, uh, the cup of trembling and the cup of wrath. This is the cup of his indignation. And he, he, he is going to pour this judgment, this righteous indignation out upon the wicked. And he shall be, listen to the, the, the plight of the wicked. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Notice the plight of the lost. That's why we need to pray for the lost. That's why we need to have compassion on the lost and try to reach them with the true gospel of salvation. You see, brothers and sisters, the thing that I want to really underscore tonight in our study is that were it not for God's grace toward you and me, we would be in this number. We would be in the position of receiving torment forever and ever. Now somebody says, well, Brother Jeff, I, I, how many times have we heard this? God wouldn't do that. God's uh, good and God's kind and God is love. And he would never imp impose um, a, a eternal suffering on anyone. That gave rise to what we call no hellism, no hell doctrine. You know, because, um, and I think really it's more out of a heart of compassion that individuals would say, surely there's, there's not a place like that. And, and somebody uh, in Alabama, I won't mention his name, good brother, good brother, but I won't mention his name, uh, but he told me it's this. He says, I just believe that when the wicked die, it's like an old barn dog. When he's dead, when, old, uh, when, when, uh, when uh, death comes to old Rover, he's dead all over. I said, brother, that's not biblical. That's not what the Bible teaches. You see, a lot, of, a lot of folks look at life that way, don't they? You only go around one, once in life, get all the gusto you can, because you're only going to live one time. That's not true. The soul of every man is eternal. And there's only one of two places that soul is going to reside in eternity. One is in heaven, one is in hell. I think about that in terms of what Jesus taught. Jesus taught us more about hell than anybody else. In Luke chapter 16, he tells a story 
about a rich man. And this rich man had everything good in this world. And remember, there was a poor man named Lazarus that came to his gate. And Lazarus was a beggar. And he was full of sores. And in, in fact, Jesus says the dogs even licked his sores. You can, just, you can just imagine the despicable condition of this individual. But Jesus went on with this story. And he says both of these men died. And Lazarus went to the bosom of Abraham, which is a Jewish expression for heaven. And the rich man went to hell. Jesus taught this. And it was a place of torment. The very same word that's used in Revelation 14 was used by our Savior in Luke chapter 16. He said he was in torment. And, and he saw a gulf between him and, and, uh, 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 him and uh, Abraham. And he said, Father Abraham, uh, would you please uh, send somebody to warn my brothers about this place? Why? Because, uh, because it's a place of torment. And this rich man is in hell lifting up his eyes to heaven. And he sees the, the uh, joy and the old word is felicity of Lazarus in heaven. And he says, uh, would, you, would you allow Lazarus to come and dip his finger in water and put it on my tongue? That's how intense his suffering was. Don't sit there tonight. And diminish, listen to me carefully, don't sit there tonight and diminish the sacrifice of Jesus Christ by claiming that there's no hell. Because that's what you're doing. Jesus endured the torments of hell that we deserved in his own body on the tree of that cross. And to say that there's no such a thing as hell, you're actually diminishing the value of the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross on our behalf. See, it's serious, isn't it? It's serious. Now listen, and I think part, that's part of the reason people don't preach out of the book of Revelation. Our people very seldom preach out of the book of Revelation. We don't want to be confronted with the enormity of what it would be like if we were not believers, if we were not children of God. But he said, He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Now, fire and brimstone. Somebody says, well, that scares the children. Well, brothers and sisters, it wasn't written to scare children. It was actually written to comfort saints. Because were it not for the grace of God, that's what we would deserve. That's what we would get in eternity. We wouldn't have any hope, any, anything to look forward to after death were it not for the cross of Calvary. Fire and brimstone. Fire and brimstone. Do you remember Genesis chapter 19, what happened to a place called Sodom? And Gomorrah. I read an interesting article recently in an archaeological uh, archaeological uh, magazine that I, I, I subscribe to, and uh, there were unbelieving uh, guys. The, these were evolutionists 
modern-day scientists, and they were doing some digging on the south end of the Dead Sea. And they dug down far enough to reach what they referred to as a tractite. Tractite. And tractite is a green, hard substance that is the result of intense heat on sand. They, when they started digging up this green stone, they thought it was, uh, they thought it was a stone. They thought it was a, a pottery. And, 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 and as they widened their search, they found out that the whole ground was covered with this green, hard tractite. And they began to discover that it was uh, several inches thick over a wide uh, uh, place in, in, in that valley. And, and they, they began to ask people, uh, you know, where, you, where, where did this come from? This is unique to this area, and how, how could this be formed? And when they did their tests, their scientific studies of it, they found out that it was uh, millions of uh, molecules of sand that had been superheated with sulfur. That's what turned it green. And you know what they called it? Brimstone. And it's a fact. A scientific, and these are not believers. These are not Christian people that were writing about this article. They said, and this is what they said. They said, an unexplained phenomenon occurred in the Valley of Sodom uh, several thousand years ago. Oh, I'd like to talk to them. <laughs> I'd take them right to Genesis chapter 19 and explain where that brimstone came from. And brothers and sisters, the reason I'm bringing that into this study tonight is because over and over again, when you are dealing with the indignation and the righteous wrath of a holy God, He uses brimstone. Intense heat, intense fire is under consideration here. And it's real. It's not metaphorical. It's not an, a, a, an analogy. It's, it's not a parable. It's a real substance that God uses in his wrath against the unbelieving world. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Listen to this, verse 11. And the smoke of their torment, this is talking about the wicked, the smoke of their torment ascended up forever and ever. It is an endless suffering. It is an endless experience. And brothers and sisters, I'm, I'm telling you, uh, somebody, this, this good brother in Alabama explained this to me years ago when I asked him about this teaching. And he said, uh, he said yeah, he, there's going to be some fire in the end of time, but they're going to just burn up. The wicked are going to burn up. I said, well, what do you do with verses like this? He says, well, that's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Forever and ever. Let me tell you the fallacy of that reasoning. The suffering of the wicked is the same extent as the experience of the righteous. If you say one ends, the other has to end. But when he uses the word, the Greek term is eon, the eternal, unending. In math, do y'all 
Remember um, how you would mark a number that no matter how many times you multiply or divide it, it it's the same value all the way through, and they would call it infinity, and you would put a line over that number. Do they teach that anymore in school? I, you know, that's back in the dark ages, but but they instead of writing six 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 a thousand times, you just put six with a line over it, and they called it infinity. And it means that it keeps going on and on and on and on. Well, that is actually a Greek notion. It, it, eon means it goes on and on and on and on and on. And when it says forever and ever, when it uses the word eon, eons and eons, it means that it's unending. And brothers and sisters, I want you to recognize that the uh, damnation of the unredeemed is the same duration as the salvation of the redeemed. It doesn't change in quantity. Pretty serious, isn't it? That's sobering, isn't it? But brothers and sisters, before we begin to kind of shake our heads and wonder if God is a, really a God of love and a God of grace and a God of compassion, I want you to remember this. I want you to remember, if you forget everything else I say tonight, don't forget this point. The God we serve and I can't explain this, Brother Nathan, but it's true. The God we serve is just as glorified with the damnation of the unregenerate as he is glorified in the salvation of the elect. Now, I'm not saying I can explain that, but that's what the Bible teaches. So here we see something that is forever and ever. Unchangeable. Unchangeable. You know, in, the, uh, in that story that Jesus talks about the rich man and Lazarus, remember he said uh, there's a gulf between the two. You can't pass over from one place to the other. And the, uh, and the sad uh, image that I have in my mind is that those that have rejected Christ and those that have rejected the truth are going to be tormented forever and ever, and part of that punishment is they're going to be a witness to the salvation of the elect. It's going to add to their suffering, not take away from it. That's a sobering, sobering thought. The smoke of their torment ascended forever and ever, a place of conscious suffering, and they have no rest day or night, who worship the beast. Listen, listen to the consequence of their uh, willful rebellion against God, their rejection of Christ. Notice the consequence. Who, they worship the beast in his image, and whosoever received the mark of his name. Now, verse 12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of of Jesus Christ. Here, brothers and sisters, remember that word patience, hupomene, is perseverance. Those that bear up under pressure. This is, uh, this is repeated several times in the book of Revelation. Chapter 13, verse 10 is the one we've already discussed. But I want you to remember that the Bible itself teaches the doctrine of perseverance. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, verse 13, that they that continue faithful to the end shall be saved. 
And brothers and sisters, I believe that all of God's elect do. Because, uh, not because of their own uh, worthiness or their own ability, but because of God's ability to keep them in the way that he's called them to go. That's God's work. God is doing this. God is persevering. God is preserving. And he says here is the patience of the saints. We realize as the people of God that there's a payday someday. Our hearts are torn. Our hearts are broken when we see the images coming out of Ukraine uh, of little children under a sheet because they were hit by shrapnel. Uh, people that fell out of buildings, apartment buildings that, that are 15 stories high because a bomb went off on the top of their building. All of those ungodly, shameful, heart-rending images that are coming out of Ukraine. Well, brothers and sisters, I'm going to tell you something on the authority of God's word tonight. There's a payday Sunday. The evil, wicked men that are doing these dastardly uh, things uh, in our world tonight, they think they're getting away with it because they have power. You know, they've got authority. They can do it because they want to do it. But brothers and sisters, one day they're going to stand before the holy tribune of God himself and give account to the lives that they've ta uh, taken. Now, I don't take solace in that. I'm not saying that, but I tell you what, I recognize that there is a God in heaven and he is the judge of all the earth and he'll always do right. Here's the patience of the saint waiting for the judgment of God upon the wicked because it's going to come. It's going to come in God's own time. How are the people of God uh, characterized? They are the ones that keep the commandments of God. They guard them. They revere them. They recognize the Ten Commandments of God as a rule of life. Somebody says, well, Brother Jeff, if I believed in salvation by grace, I would be the biggest antinomian there was. Antinomian means against the law of God. You don't understand God's grace. God's grace did not nullify the law. He did not nullify the Ten Commandments. He actually... Um, uh, he actually lifted uh, high, to a higher degree the commandments of God, revealing to us that we it is impossible in our own strength to keep those laws. But by God's grace, listen to me, by God's empowering grace and the filling of the Holy Spirit, that's what gives us the ability to keep His law. If He removes that grace from us, but a moment, we fail in every count. And if you've broken one of those laws, brothers and sisters, the Bible says you're guilty of all. That's why we need a Savior. <laughs> That's why Jesus had to come. And we keep, we guard, we regard, we, we honor the Ten Commandments. And we strive by the grace of God to keep those commandments. And I love this verse. How many times have we used this this verse at funerals, verse 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. I just want a few quick thoughts on this verse. 
I want you to notice that it's written. Have you noticed this? He says, write it. Write it down. Write it. Preserve it in a written form for future reference. Something that will, uh, uh, something to which the people of God in the end of time can appeal. And also, notice the word blessed. Remember I told you when we were in the first chapter of this study, I'm sure you remember every word, but in uh, chapter 1, uh, we found uh, where he said, Blessed are they that read the words of this prophecy. And I told you at that time, and I'm sure you remember it, I told you at that time that there are seven Beatitudes in the book of Romans, uh, the book of Revelation. There's seven. And here's the second one. The second one is a very important one. Blessed are they that die in the Lord. When he says in the Lord, he's talking about vital union. He's, he's talking about a people that are connected to the life-giving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's vital union. When I say vital, I'm talking about living. Uh, because for the people of God, let me tell you something. Uh, Brother Edwin has never been more alive than he is tonight, friends. Because of the vital union that he possessed and made plain in the life that he lived here. The vital union that we have with the Lord Jesus Christ is what brings joy to us in the face of death. Joy to us in the face of judgment when the whole world is, uh, if, if you'll allow me to say it this way, going to hell. Yet God's people are able to rejoice. I, I, I read a, a testimony by a Christian in Ukraine whose, whose family was, uh, part of his family died as a result of a bomb in his apartment building. And he says, but I'm looking forward to seeing him again. That's what I'm talking about. That's the kind of faith that we have tonight and the kind of joy that we have even in the face of death, even in the face of inflation, even in the face of covid even in the face of unjust rulers, even in the face of evil rulers in a wicked and broken world, God's people have this consolation because of what was written. Blessed are they that die in the Lord. And, and listen to this. And their works do follow them. Why do you think it's put it that way? Why, why, do, why do you think the Spirit made sure we understood that the works follow God's people and they don't precede them. If it would have said it this way, and their works precede them into heaven, then the saving work of God would be dependent upon what they did. It would be dependent upon their works. But their works don't precede them. Their titles don't precede them. They follow them. And I'll tell you why. Because if there ever is any work in our lives that is pleasing and glorifying to God, God's going to get the credit for it. Not man. If we have ever done any good in all of our life that has really brought praise and glory to the name of Christ, 
It's because of Him and His grace that that work was done. So their works do follow them, not as a, uh, a purchase of eternal life, but as the result of eternal life, as the result of the saving work of God, as um, a testimony or an evidence of the saving work of God's grace toward man. That's why he said follow. And their works do follow them. Oh, and another thought right here. Brothers and sisters, never, never buy into the idea that God forgets your works of faith. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. What I'm talking about is what God prompts you and I to do in His service and for His glory. I'm telling you on the authority of God's Word, God will never forget that. That work will follow you. This is the evidence of God's working in your life. Uh, okay, and he says, we're going to rest. He says, that, uh, yea, the spirit, uh, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors. Rest from what? Rest from all sin. Rest from all sorrow. Rest from all temptation. Rest from all persecution. Rest from all heartache. Uh, rest from all uh, mistakes. Isn't that a marvelous thing for us to look forward to? Our works do not proceed as a price that's paid uh, to purchase eternal life, but are as the evidence of a gracious state. In verse 14, he says, And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud one set, like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. Brothers and sisters, I believe this is none other than Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ as the judge of all the earth. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 5 verse 27. All judgment is given unto the Son. All judgment. He is the, the righteous judge uh, who will come at the end of this age. According to Acts chapter 17. And judge the world in righteousness. Jesus said in Matthew chapter uh, 20. Uh, yeah, 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 Matthew chapter 24 verse 30. He is the judge that returns at the end of the age in order to separate his sheep from the goats. And he has a crown, a golden crown upon his head, the Stephanos, the, the victor's crown upon his head. And uh, he is the Lord of the harvest. He is the Lord of the harvest. He is the Kurios. He is the Lord. He, he is wearing many crowns. One of those crowns is diadema. He, he, uh, the royal diadem as the ruler and one having authority to judge. You see, brothers and sisters, we, we, uh, we don't have authority to judge. You know, he says, judge not lest ye be judged. We don't have the authority to judge anyone's heart. But the Son of Man does. The Son of Man knows what's on the inside of you. What's on the inside of the people. And he has that authority to judge. And in his right hand is a sharp sickle. If you're taking notes, that sickle represents the sword of divine justice. This is the declaration of the time of righteous judgment. He says in verse 15, another angel. This is the fourth angel in the chapter. It comes uh, out of the temple. Uh, and I believe that's the temple in heaven. Somebody says, well, that's got to be the temple in Jerusalem. I believe it's the temple in heaven. Um, 
Uh, because uh, remember when Moses was receiving the diagram of the tabernacle, he said, build it according to the pattern of what you've seen. What did he see? He saw the heavenly temple. He was building it after the pattern of heaven itself. And here uh, this angel comes from the uh, holy throne of God. And, and he says this with a loud voice, thrust in thy sickle and reap. You see, it's the time of the harvest. For the time is come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. The time of final judgment has come. The earth is now ripe. It's dried. It's, it's, uh, it, 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 it's ready for the harvest. It's, it, it, uh, this language is talking about cutting down. It, it's the cutting uh, of the grain. Uh, the time uh, is right for the cutting down of the wicked. And he, verse 16, and he that sat upon the cloud thrust in, that's Jesus, thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel, this is angel number five, came out of the temple, heavenly temple, which is in heaven. Which is in heaven. (laughs) Uh, He also having a sharp sickle. Uh And another angel, this is angel number six, came out of the altar, uh, from the altar, which had power over fire. And he cried with a loud voice to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in the sharp sickle and gather. Now watch, here, here's the vintage. We went from grain to vintage, to grapes. Uh, some people, actually, and smart, smarter people than I am, believe that the, these are two aspects, uh, 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 these are two separate judgments. I believe that they're two aspects of one judgment. He's, he's using the illustration of the harvest in reference to grain and grapes. The harvest uh, of grain and the vintage of grapes. And this fits into so much of the Old Testament uh, scriptures uh, that uses both the, 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 the reaping of, of grain and, and grapes. So angel number six says, uh, he has power over fire and he cries with a loud voice. Uh, to him that had a sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle, and uh, gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. See, he's talking about a vintage. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth, and gathered the vine of the earth, and cast it into a great winepress of the wrath of God. Now, brothers and sisters, uh, I believe that this is um, a foretaste. This is a, a view of the battle that we call Armageddon. And we'll see that later in our study of Revelation. But remember, this chapter is kind of like a table of contents. It's showing you what these judgments are going to do that are coming, that are about to be poured out upon the earth. And the last one is the battle of Armageddon, the wrath of God poured out upon the unbelieving. And verse 20 scares me. It it, it shakes my timbers. And the winepress was trodden without the city and and the blood and blood came out of the winepress even unto the horse bridles by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs which is uh which is a, a greek uh expression that's translated into english that signifies 184 miles 184 miles can you imagine can, can, can you imagine a stream of blood that come up approximately four feet 
to the bridle's uh, a bit bit of the the horse's bridle. That's 184 miles long. And if you notice, if you'll take a map of ancient Israel from Dan all the way down to Beersheba. Dan is the northernmost city. Beersheba is the southernmost city. It's 184 miles. You think that's an accident? Do you? No. Do you know what connects Beersheba to Dan? A valley. The longest valley in, in the world is between those two points. And it's called the Valley of Megiddo. Armageddon. God bless you. Thank you for your good attention.